everybody. You are listening to the Northern Miner Podcast, and I'm your host, Matthew Keevil. We are uh, essentially the uh, original Global Mining Podcast, I believe, and this is indeed our 52nd episode. So that's right, we are celebrating our one-year anniversary, roughly, uh, and oh my, how time does fly. Uh, I'd first and foremost like to thank our listeners and audience. Uh, You guys have grown by leaps and bounds over the past year, Um, and the thing that probably gets me the most excited um, is how we've sort of uh, bridged a generational and geographic gap here um, in our little corner of cyberspace. Uh, We have everyone from mining students across Canada, be it at SFU, uh, Queens, Um, I've heard from people as far over as Dalhousie uh, tuning in right up to some of Canada's most experienced mining executives. Um, Our listeners geographically range from here in Canada and the U.S. all the way across the Atlantic to places like the United Kingdom and Scandinavia. Uh, We have a lot of uh, listeners in Finland, so hi Finland. Uh, We've also seen our uh, listenership grow in emerging jurisdictions in Africa and across the South Pacific. So thank you everyone. Uh, Thanks for being so interactive. Uh, Thanks for providing great suggestions and directions for the program. Um, I think the most important thing we do here is promote the discussion on mining globally um, and we have a great time while we're doing it uh, because that's what Leslie and I like to do which is have fun um, but uh, thanks again um, and this week we do have a great episode um, linking back a little bit to my point on education we have an awesome geology corner guest this week uh, Craig Hart will be joining us uh, Craig is the director of the University of British Columbia's Mineral Deposit Research Unit uh, maybe more well known as the MDRU um, uh, we, we bring Craig in uh, Leslie and myself and we'll discuss the uh, an industry and government-funded Yukon, Alaska project. Uh, now, this involves uh, data compilations uh, that will range as far uh, south as the Yukon-BC border and as far west as the Fairbanks District in Alaska. Uh, so needless to say, uh, we will dig into uh, Gold Corp's recently acquired coffee deposit with Craig, uh, as well as the discovery potential that remains in the Yukon's White Gold District. Um and importantly, we've seen a lot of um, majors making uh, significant uh, uh, capital investments in exploration in the district recently. Uh, we have Gold Corp, obviously, um, and not only its purchase of Kamenak, but also its investment in uh, Independence Gold, which uh, controls the uh, contiguous Boulevard Gold project. We also saw Ignico Eagle uh, invest $14.5 million in Sean Ryan's new white gold vehicle. Uh, so Craig will dig into uh, a sort of a little uh, um, uh, insight on, on the, the deposit types up there. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about orogenics, about intrusive gold, uh, and he'll also take us on a little geological trip across the border into Alaska. And then later in the show, I also have a few comments uh, from an interview I did uh, with uh, Leah Gold Mining CEO Neil Woodyear. Now, uh, the company is per- is uh, in the process of purchasing the Los Filos Gold Mine in Mexico from Gold Corp. Um, and anyone familiar with uh, the Endeavor mining story in West Africa uh, will probably know Neil uh, Neil's name and his team. Um, so they've decided to take their sort of uh, intermediate gold uh, production model. Uh, they built up Endeavor Mining uh, through a series of acquisitions and developments and they've they're taking their expertise now to latin america uh clearly into mexico um and they're also looking pr- pr- uh prospectively at other uh acquisition opportunities uh but we'll dig into that a little bit later um and i'll run a few comments from neil um on what they're sort of looking at at leah gold mining and what they think of los filos first however let's get into our macroeconomic roundup for the week The U.S. dollar was near six-week lows to start the week after a dovish Fed tone during its meeting on March 14th and 15th. Scotiabank reports that gold's recent move has been characterized by significant short covering, followed by now fresh long interest. It should be noted that nine Fed policymakers are set to make speeches this week, and the market will be looking for clues. 
On the copper side, our attention remains focused on potential supply disruptions fueled by a series of socio-political situations worldwide. First, the labor strike at BHP Billiton's world-class Escondida copper mine in Chile's Atacama Desert recently extended to 39 days. The union has rejected BHP's latest offer after holding a series of meetings over the weekend where BHP offered a signing bonus, a wage readjustment based on uh, consumer price index, and a new collective contract that should last for 42 months. The company agreed to keep in place a former agreement to treat new employees the same as long-time employees. The union has warned they are willing to be on strike for three months. Meanwhile, talks between Free, Freeport McMorrin and striking workers at its Cerro Verde copper mine in Peru broke down Thursday, with miners announcing their plan to start an indefinite stoppage beginning March 24th. That includes around 1,300 unionized miners uh, who put down tools on March 10th. They are demanding better working conditions as well as a larger share of profits. Freeport, which attempted to evade the effects of the strike by using contract workers, said earlier this week that labor action would likely end next week as the government had declared it illegal. The union, however, has disputed the ruling. Uh, Scotiabank calculates we have seen around 370,000 tons of copper supply that has not materialized thus far this year. We are around 20% into 2017, and 35% of the disruption is due to the Escondida strike, while 12% is due to Freeport's ongoing problems in Indonesia with its Grasberg mine. Escondida lost another 25,000 tons, or, or 7% of that supply disruption, in January through a lack of productivity before the strike. Meanwhile, West Texas Intermediate crude oil dropped roughly uh, 1.4% at the time of recording to $48.10 per barrel. Now, let's get cracking on that awesome geology corner. Uh, again, we are being joined by Craig Hart from the UBC Mineral Deposit Research Unit. I hope you uh, enjoy this awesome segment, uh, I said awesome again, on Alaska Yukon geology. Um, I'll see you after the break and we'll introduce a few comments from Belia Gold Mining CEO, Neil Woodyard. episode of the geology corner back at the uh, pub again yeah we're back at Preston's <laughs> downtown Vancouver <laughs> yeah, yeah. We got a little bit of a special geology corner here today because I have my Google of information um, mr. Craig Hart director of mineral deposits research unit of at UBC yep. here in Vancouver That's right. and he's here today and we're going to be digging into all sorts of amazing things about gold and mineral deposits of the Yukon and Alaska and Alaska. So, University of British Columbia, just so our listeners know. Uh, so, maybe, Craig, you can start just with explaining what you guys do and, and, yeah, and a little bit about yeah, the program. Say, I'm the director of uh, MDRU, the Mineral Deposit Research uh, Unit, and we're based at uh, the Department of Earth, Ocean, Ocean and Atmospheric Sciences at UBC. Uh, we're entirely industry supported, and so we're always working on industry related projects. And uh, that provides us that uh, one foot uh, downtown Vancouver and one foot at UBC, and it's a great place to be. Cool, and the really amazing thing that you have to know about Craig Hart is that he was one of the finalists in Integra's Gold Rush Challenge last year, along with Sarah Jenkins, the uh, GIS specialist expert. So. That's right, yeah, we were in the top five, which was very exciting because I think we probably put far less work into it than anybody else, <laughs> and uh, we won the uh, Audience Choice Award as well. Yeah, mm -hmm. you did. 
Everyone's favorite. Yep, that was good. Not surprised. Yeah. What, 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 what was it loosely? What was your sort of pitch that got you such a high standing well, there? Well, we found a target that yeah. is within 250 meters of the underground workings at Lamac that has been ignored for years and years and years, and people have walked over it, drove their snowmobiles over <laughs> it, and uh, it was just a blind target that... Uh, had not been recognized because it was on an, an ancestral uh, claim boundary. Oh, oh okay. And oh. so uh, people yeah. didn't want to go near the claim boundary for yeah. fear of adding value to their neighbors. And when airborne surveys were flown, they wouldn't fly over the... Uh, oh. So when we looked at the older data that existed before that claim boundary was there, we could see the target was uh, was clear and uh, just needed some attention. So wow. pretty old-fashioned geo-hunting skills, ex- nothing fancy, nope, no, nothing, I, no augmented reality. That's, nope, that's it. For, <laughs> magic wands, for, uh, a, a, water sticks. A contest that's set up with all that innovation and everything, we just used very simple brute force <laughs> geological approaches. And Think about it a little bit of a different way and sometimes you can... Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, if there's, one, if there's one person out there that knows his geology, um, it's definitely Craig and I know that he's been um, kind of, like I said, my go-to expert for everything to do with the Western Cordillera here. Um, So spanning from British Columbia through the Yukon up to Alaska. And he's been spending years devoted to figuring out where explorers can go to find more. Um, And recently we've seen a huge surge of interest with major mining companies flocking in to Yukon specifically, looking at gold juniors um, we had Newmont come in with $35 million into Gold Strike. And then we had, of course, Triumph Gold just recently got a big plug from Gold Corp. And the list goes on and on, I think. Anyway, so hundreds of millions of dollars are going into juniors up there. And I thought maybe I'd talk to Craig a little bit about why he feels um, Yukon is gaining such attention again and what kind of blue sky potential is still out there for explorers today. Craig? Well, there's a lot wrapped up in that question. So let's, <laughs> let's, it's a catch-all. Let's, 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 yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, do we have an hour? Yeah. Um, so, uh, these things don't just happen by themselves, right? Is that there was a lot of ground preparation that's happened in the Yukon for sort of a decade before all this happened, right? The Yukon government continually puts money into the Yukon Geological Survey uh, they, to try and make sure that there's lots of uh, information and knowledge and fresh data and fresh maps that are happening. Uh, they support the prospectors up there. They have uh, Yukon mining incentive programs that provides opportunities for low-level uh, uh, geological uh, work because a discovery is is the tip of a, of, a, of a pyramid. And there's all of this ground preparation that needs to get in there in order for these discoveries to be made. And so really, I think the, the most important thing is that the Yukon has put their, their efforts and their investment into allowing these things to happen. Hmm. So that's why guys like Sean Ryan He's somebody who's smart enough who can take advantage of all of that new information, that new data. He's talking to the government guys, and he uses that to come up with his next great thing. Data mining. It's not just data mining. It's yeah. about integrating the information, integrating right? Everything. Yeah, but right. it has to be there before you can do anything with it. Well, exactly. it's, a, it's a full picture. And, and I think, Greg, one of the things that's really drawn everybody's attention is obviously white gold and the white gold district, as they call it. Um, and coffee, which was obviously purchased by Gold Corp, and that's drawn a lot of attention due to multi-million ounce potential, which is what majors look for. But if we rewind maybe a few years, Kinross bought Underworld Resources and completely missed, essentially whiffed, right? Um, and I'm so kind of wondering why coffee, like sort of what went wrong the first time? Why did they miss on Underworld, whereas coffee's turned into sort of this more expansive project? And what you kind of think of White Gold 
uh, as a geological district. Yep. Well, yeah. no, you're absolutely right. It was yeah. White Gold that really sort of made that uh, first thing happen, right? That yeah. was Underworld, and they did an excellent job of putting together as much of the exploration package as they could. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kinross thought that they could be clever and come in there and add some, some more ounces. But it was a little bit more difficult than that. And mm -hmm. sometimes you just don't know getting into this. Mm -hmm. And this is a part of the world where there's very little outcrop, right? It's like it's, a geology mapping is like a road map, but you really only have 5% of the information. Mm -hmm. How can you get from point A to point B? Yeah. And so in an area like that, there's lots that is hidden. And so you need to be cleverer than all your competitors in order to see where the extra value is, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, Sean Ryan, again, the discoverer of, of Weichel, it's because he doesn't care about the geology so much is that he's looking at putting the best data sets together possible. Mm -hmm. And so he's looking at soil data, he's looking at geochemistry, and it doesn't matter if there's a rock there or not, he takes a sample and he keeps on going. And it was that same sort of approach then that led him to discover coffee. And, and, yeah, and, and interestingly, I mean, just to segue off that, Coffee, I know the geological model Kamenak used over the life of the gold discovery and adding those ounces changed. And and more recently, they started classifying more as orogenic, whereas previously they'd used different models to describe the gold mineralization. And as someone who's obviously working out there as an academic geologist, I'm wondering, what, how did you see that transformation of, of how they looked at that deposit if, as you followed it along? Yeah, well, I think it goes back as well to, uh, to white gold, right, where everybody was uh, thinking about things as having this intrusion related flavor mm -hmm. and so that was sort of the flavor of the day that's what people were thinking about mm -hmm. but then we recognized from uh, the age dates at white gold that it has to be related to crustal fluids to, to metamorphism and it didn't have an intrusion related association yeah. but coffee was partly contained within a hundred million year old intrusion mm -hmm. so we knew that it was at least 50 million years younger than white gold so it represented an entirely different um, mineralizing event mm. and so that sort of set the stage again for us to reconsider that question mm. is this related to one of the intrusions over there that's specially enriched in gold or is this related again to some other crustal fluid that we we don't recognize very well mm -hmm. Mm. so it yeah it sets up that and you're right how the mo what what you what model you think works best influences how you make decisions and so people will say, oh, I don't ever use a model. Well, that means you're never making a decision <laughs> yeah. because we all need to, to create or fabricate a framework around which, which we make decisions. And so this has been the ongoing issue at, uh, at, uh, at Coffee. But regardless, they knew the type of ore well enough that they were continually being successful. And the fact that it was deeply oxidized was a thing that really sort of pushed the deposit over the top in terms of attracting a, a, a major uh, yeah. Like gold court. Yeah. So what does the white gold district look to you now? What kind of potential is left there? I think it's it, it, it exists, right? There's still good potential in that area. We've done a very good job within our group and the government mappers in the Yukon of, of understanding the geological picture up there. So now we have a better framework than we ever had before. And the QV deposit that Comstock have been working on is, a, is almost a carbon copy of white gold. So now we have two wow. places that are giving us the same information. So the model is even stronger. And so again, because there's so poor outcrop up there yeah. is that the opportunity to find things like this still exists. It's not going to be easy, but we know what we're looking for. Mm -hmm. I think that it was really interesting that you guys were able to differentiate the two ages between the mineralizing events at White Gold and at Coffee. And the reason why, of course, is because those two ages, as I understand it, correlate to two big massive tectonic events that occurred. Um, I guess 150 million years ago is when Stikinia, that volcanic arc that hosts all of the porphyry deposits, docked onto the margin of 
um, ancestral North America. And that drove a lot of fluids into, um, I guess, the White Gold District, and also in the Barkerville District here in British Columbia. And then, of course, 100 million years ago-ish, the gold at um, Kamenak was introduced when we had another volcanic terrain dock onto ancestral North America. And so, I, I, for me, it seems like, you know, we have all this potential in the Yukon, but that, that tectonic event affected the entire margin of British Columbia, Yukon, and into Alaska. So, I mean, are there other Klondike gold fields kicking around in BC and Alaska, and the same thing with um, coffee? Like, are there other types like that out there? There, there definitely are, right? Yeah, like, and, and we know that when you get into Alaska, there's all those big placer uh, districts. The Fairbanks district probably has eight to 10 million ounces just in placer. And so we know really? that those types of uh, mineral deposits that are formed from orogenic crustal fluids are, are out there in these metamorphic terrains. So are you seeing a lot of renewed interest in people wanting to get in on this project in Alaska? Yeah, absolutely. We're getting lots of interest in everything we've been doing in Yukon and Alaska. Companies want in, they want to know about what's going on in the project. Um, and we'd love to help them out. And we can sometimes, but other times we're beholden to the companies that have given us the money <laughs> to be there. So uh, because they've given us that money, they get the uh, information first and they can okay. use it, that's their competitive advantage. And uh, at some point though, this will be made public. It's like a patent on information. So when, when will that be lifted? When will everyone have access to all the good things you're discovering out yep. there? So we will deliver the final package to the companies in May. Okay. And uh, the clock starts ticking at that point. And some things will become available after six months and other things after a year. Have they been kept up to date, by the way, on what some of your findings leading up to the point? Absolutely. We've got technical okay. meetings at least once, sometimes twice a year, to make sure that they're totally up on uh, what our, uh, our, our new information is all about. Cool. Now, well, I'm really excited. Before we wrap up, I had a quick question. Yeah. And this yeah. just occurred to me whilst listening to you guys talk. Is that is it you're saying now Fort Knox might be orogenic as well and mistaken as an intrusion related? Pogo. Pogo, Pogo sorry, Pogo. Yeah, yeah. And I was wondering, um, is there something specific that would cause that the two deposits like coffee and like Pogo to be mistaken for the same thing when there's something else? Like is there something that led people down that path? Yeah, in, absolutely. The thing is that they're both in intrusive rocks. Okay. And okay. so Geologists in particular have this uh, immediate attraction to those red blobs on geological maps. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right? <laughs> yeah, the yeah. red blobs are always where you're going to find the gold. And yeah. so when you find gold in a red blob, we say, okay, that's got to be an, have an intrusion uh, association, right? Mm -hmm. But sometimes that association really is genetic, mm -hmm. but other times it's just there because that red blob of rock is very brittle and it fractures really well. Mm. And rocks that fracture well are the best places for those orogenic crustal fluids to go into. Now, when you say genetic, you're gonna, I, again, I'm the I'm the financial sort of uh, proxy for the <laughs> yeah, listener yeah. here who's, who's listening to the podcast. Well, what, maybe you could get a little more, more color just on what that means exactly, the differentiation there? Yeah, it's just, yeah. Where, it's just what the original source of the fluids were, Okay. right? And so we know that uh, granites, as they are now, they're, they're tombstones. Yeah. But at one point, they were magma, they were mush, right? They were melt, they were a thousand degrees. Yeah. But as they cool down, they will effervesce fluids, much like bubbles in a beer glass, right? You'll get these bubbles of fluid coming up, and those fluids will have gold and copper associated with them. And when they come up and to the upper part of the crust, they can go into cracks too. So that's an intrusion-related type ore system. And red blobs. 
when you say red, red blobs. Yeah, it's because on every geology map, the geologists always color the granites red. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then that is they associate with intrusions and they or intrusion related events. Exactly. It's the language of geology and colors. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. what we're trying to do on the Northern Miner podcast: is lift the veil. As they say. Well, yeah. most geologists yeah. have a part of their their life when they spend a lot of time with pencil crayons. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so everyone will know Prismacolor nine seventeen or something. Yeah. Like that. that is so true. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us today, Craig. Um, absolutely a pleasure always talking to you. And glad that you got on the podcast. And I hope you can get down and hang out with us more for these. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, if you're going to buy rounds, I'll show up. Oh, easy. Sounds good. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. And catch you next week. This is Leslie Stokes from Northern Miner. back to studio i would like to thank craig hart once again from ubc's mdru for joining us that was a great little segment to cover uh some of the uh the uh, work they're doing up north there uh, in terms of uh providing a little bit of a better understanding for explorers in the yukon and alaska to hopefully find more of those coffee lake deposits uh so it was great once again thanks so much craig uh we'll hope to have uh some more guests from the mdru have craig back uh every so often to uh, get an update on what they're doing because uh academic geology is awesome um, and uh, it's fun to uh, get them in and uh, and talk a little bit about um, what's going on in terms of mapping geological districts with broader strokes. Uh, so once again, that, that was uh, Craig Hart from UBC's MDRU. Um, and now uh, I'm going to run about two and a half minutes, I think, of audio uh, from Neil Woodyear, who is the CEO of Leah Gold Mining uh, on the venture. That is LMC is the ticker symbol. Um, and the uh, team from Leah Gold was formerly with Endeavor Mining, which uh, grew over the past, let's say, five to seven years um, into one of West Africa's leading intermediate gold miners. Um, and uh, Leagle was actually emerged in mid-2016 uh, as essentially a shell. Uh, Neil Woodyear was a CEO and he holds a 20.4% equity stake, while Frank Justra, a financier, maintains an 11.5% equity interest. Um, so what they will be doing is picking up uh, Gold Corp's Los Filos mine, which lies about 20, uh, 230 kilometers sorry, due south of Mexico City. Uh, they will be paying around um, $350 million in cash and shares. Um, and that will include around $279 million U.S. in cash and U.S. $71 million in shares. Uh, this is going to result in Gold Corp holding roughly a 22% pro rata interest in the company. So one to watch here. Um, and I'm just going to run a little audio from Neil uh, on the acquisition and the due diligence process on Los Filos and sort of what the company envisions over the short term, or I should say probably midterm. Um, and uh, uh, Leah Gold recently arranged a U.S. $150 million senior secured loan facility uh, from a fund managed by Orion Resource Partners. Uh, the company also closed a $175 million equity offering, uh, so they are well cashed up to close the deal um, and move ahead. They are looking uh, at expediting development of a new underground opportunity called at uh, the El Bermajal uh, deposit um, and uh, and hopefully uh, ramping up uh, production at Los Filos. Um, and uh, Neil will dig into that a little bit during his comments. Uh, so I will run these and uh, I will be back after the break and we'll wrap up up our anniversary edition. When, when you look at this, we've basically been through this experience before, the team has, but in, in West Africa, building and buying and creating the intermediate. And when you look where, elsewhere to do it, Latin America is the obvious place. First of all, the size of the 
mining industries, the opportunities in Latin America are much bigger. Uh, geographic diversification, uh, also uh, a number of seniors who may well be disposing of properties, and a number of junior or smaller companies that may be struggling one way or another that could do with some, some help or some amalgamation or something like that. So I think a lot of opportunity. And when we look back as to what we did in West Africa, um, it's a bigger market. Hopefully the market is better now than it was then, both in terms of gold price, financing and everything else. So hopefully it's a better situation all around than the one we, we, we lived through for five or six years before. Well, for us, it's, it, it, it's, it's a large asset to, to acquire for a, for a single asset company. Yeah. Um, it's been a big mine, well run for many years by a senior mining company. Therefore, it has all those attributes to it of a well-run well operation. Yeah. It's small now compared to other, other assets. The fact that it gets more complicated because the development step is a second underground mine yeah. makes it less attractive to them than some of their larger um, I hate to say more straightforward, but some of their larger assets, and, and therefore that's why they were shedding it. Plus, uh, they could see the benefit of Los Velos growing, but they're going to retain something like a 25% share in, in their goal so that they will get that upside benefit as well as the company as the company develops the mine. Well, I think the, the, the more people are looking, it's very much market-driven in terms of timing in the market, where, where the equity market is, where the debt market is, and all the rest of it. But yes, there, there are definitely other people looking. There was competition for this asset. Other people went through the same process. Um, the, the, there are a number of other seniors who may well be shedding. So we, we think it's appropriate time for us, after the next stage we've developed this, we'll look at the market again. When we were looking now, Doug has a fantastic portfolio of opportunities aware of, and went down and looked at a couple of assets. And, and this Los Filos came up, and it was certainly in our top five. Yeah. Uh, and, and we were lucky at the timing. So we just sort of dropped everything and went for it, because for us, it's such a good mine. It's over 200,000 answers a year. And this last period, it's just sort of by the 850 operating cost, all in sustaining. So it puts it about the middle of the Costco. And we can see it through the, the expansion going up to over 300 at less than 700. So it's a great asset for us to get our hands on. And welcome back. And so that's a little uh, interesting emerging story with Leah Gold Mining. Uh, we'll keep our eye on that as they close the deal and move ahead with their plans at Los Filos. I would like to thank CEO Neil Woodyear for sitting down. Uh, if you're interested in the longer form article on Leah Gold, please do surf by northernminer.com and check it out. Uh, and as always, please do consider subscribing. Uh, as I always say, it is a screaming bargain. Uh, so do uh, hop over to the website, hit that subscribe button, and check out the details. Um, and as always, please do like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and check out our YouTube channel. Uh, and do rate this uh, podcast on iTunes because that helps us out a ton. Um, and while we're on the subject, uh, just a quick update on our Canadian Mining Symposium, which is happening at Canada House in London on May 9th. Uh, we've had a few, uh, as we mentioned, exciting speakers hop on board. Uh, last week, we uh, announced that David Garofalo of Goldcorp and Kelvin Dushinsky of Barrick Gold will be on the speaking docket alongside Lucas Lundin and Robert Friedland. Uh, so a nice uh, stable of speakers shaping up for what should be an absolutely landmark event, uh, celebrating Canada's 150-year anniversary. Uh, so we're really excited about that. If you're interested in our Canadian Mining Symposium, please do surf by the website check out the details um, I believe some sponsorships are still available um, and we are hoping to do a special edition of the podcast overseas there um, so hopefully we'll get some uh, some special guests on and uh, have a really good episode uh, live from our Canadian Mining Symposium in May uh, but that pretty much wraps up our show for the week this has been Matthew Kiva with the Northern Miner and happy one year anniversary and thanks so much for listening